Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Sequoia Nagamatsu on his debut novel, How High We Go in the Dark. Sequoia Nagamatsu is a Japanese-American writer and managing editor of Psychopomp magazine, an online quarterly dedicated to innovative prose. Originally from Hawaii and the San Francisco Bay Area, he holds an MFA in creative writing from Southern Illinois University and a BA in anthropology from Grinnell College. His work has appeared in such publications as Conjunctions, The Southern Review, Zuzava, Fairy Tale Review and Tin House, and he's the author of the award-winning short story collection Where We Go When All We Were Is Gone. And he teaches creative writing at St. Olaf College and the Rainier Writing Workshop Low Residency MFA program. Now, he currently lives in Minnesota with his wife, Kat, and a robot dog named Calvino, a point which will make more sense when we talk about his novel, How High We Go in the Dark. Sequoia, welcome to Little Atoms. Yeah, thank you for having me. Tell us, first of all, then, I want to know how you would describe how high we go in the dark. Well, I think in terms of genre, I think literary speculative, um, I think would be an apt way of describing it. I think I've sort of seen it on a lot of science fiction lists and categories are, are always, I think, very slippery. But I think a lot of readers understand the word speculative to often mean science fictional um, or fantastical in some ways, but often... Uh, having um, a more more of a focus on character development on the live on the interiority of of characters um so while there is an overarching through line and plot um in the novel it's certainly not the focus the focus is on kind of the everyday lives of the people that are reacting to this you know, cataclysmic event in the book yeah, and, and the, the sort of central cataclysmic event in this book is a plague, a global mm-hmm. pandemic. And, right. and something we should get out of the way straight away is, despite that, this is not a book about COVID. This oh, is a book not. that's serendipitously released now mm-hmm. during a massive global pandemic, but something that you've been working on for a long time. Right. Yes. I, uh, I mean, the earliest seeds of the book, I think, began around 2007, 2008. And I think really, you know, the kaleidoscopic nature of the book, I think, really nods at the fact that I have been working on this for a long time. And, um, you know, over 10 years ago, I didn't know this was going to be 
the book it is right now. As I evolved as a writer, as I evolved different research interests, I began sort of, you know, realizing the book in its current form. Um, But it was certainly a process that didn't happen overnight. You've written a book of short stories before. This is, as I said, it's described as your first novel. Mm-hmm. Um, although it, it does read like, potentially like a, a collection of lightly interlinked short stories mm-hmm. that has this sort of idea of the plague running behind it. And indeed, you know, a, a, according to the um, the sort of first couple of pages to the book, to the, the copyright page, the stories have been sort of released in other places previously as as stories. So how did it mm-hmm. come together in the sort of present form? Sure. Yeah. So I would say the the stories that were released in their older, in, in, in uh, literary magazines or, or publications were the very, very raw early forms of, of the chapters that readers are, are coming to. Um, I would say when I had written about half of the book, I realized that I had a little bit more than just a collection and perhaps even more than a linked collection. Um, and I want to stress this because yes, while people can gain, I think, some satisfaction from reading individual chapters as standalone pieces, if they're jumping around and treating uh, the book like a mixed tape where they're going to read one chapter at the end and one and then go back to the beginning, they're ultimately going to be very lost <laughs> um, and, and miss out on the evolution of the world um, and society that is kind of running through the novel. In addition to missing Easter eggs that I've planted in every chapter that nods at the culmination of you know how everything is kind of put together uh, and and circles back to the beginning um, in the last chapter. Uh, there's this other kind of cosmic thread that goes back billions of years. So once I had kind of about half the uh, stories written, I started to think about recurring characters, recurring motifs, locations, and um, I think the largest obstacle for me was just imagining how society would evolve over generations and even technologically in reaction to both the plague in the book, but also in terms of climate change. So thinking about fictional social media, like what kind of social media platforms would we have, you know, 70, 80 years from now, you know, how would our culture or different cultures be affected by um, the aftermath of the plague, you know, several generations from now? So those were questions I started to um, have to unpack um, as I thought about this as a book versus as a collection. Yeah, and, and the overarching larger story that you said you dropped clues throughout the book right from the very beginning. And that we won't talk about that, obviously, because that's that, that's something we want to, you know, readers to sort of pick up. Right, yeah. That one's a bit of a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, let's let's talk about the, the sort of very beginning and and I guess the origins of the plague what comes to be known as the arctic plague and you know not least because this is a where this comes from is a very real concern of of our own world let's talk Mm -hmm. about where it where it originates yeah um i mean i feel like we keep seeing more and more articles about um scientists uncovering things in the arctic ice which is wonderful and horrifying um and i came across one such of these articles in 2014 and um, that's around the time when I, when I started to develop the plague thread in, in some of the stories and some of the chapters. Um, so, you know, the early seeds of the novel didn't have a plague in it at all. I would say the primary thrust of the book at that point was mostly just grief. 
and um, reimagining grief and uh, funerary rituals and practices. And, you know, those interests were really, um, I think, ignited by my own grieving process of my grandfather and living in Japan at the time, um, which I think really kind of opened my eyes to more innovative, um, non-traditional ways of mourning and, and dealing with their bodies, you know, just simply because they have such a large elderly population, they're just doing very interesting things. In Japan, in a place like Tokyo, there are funerary skyscrapers. You know, there are there are these kind of very technologically, um, you know, forward ways of, of thinking about death. But once the plague, once I read that plague article uh, in the Atlantic, I thought that I could use it as a backdrop, you know, for those stories of grief. Um, I never really wanted to privilege that because we already have so many of those films and books where the virus is the star. I wanted to, I think from the very beginning, focus on relationships and everyday moments as a response to something like a pandemic. Yeah, and indeed, so the the virus, although there are scientists in this book, some of the characters are scientists that are working directly with the virus um, right from the beginning, the virus quickly becomes like a background fact of life and and Mm -hmm. your focus is on the relationships between people and how they are affected, obviously, by it, by, by death. But often these are families where... There's tensions anyway, you know, the families right. are, um, you know, are broken or are estranged and the sadness that comes when, you know, a, a family member dies and that estrangement that has existed is never healed. Yeah, that's that's definitely correct. Um, I think, you know, I, I definitely wanted to highlight how um, a pandemic like this, um, and I think, I think maybe a lot of us can appreciate this now because we're living through it, we've been plucked out of our own lives and you know, when you're when you're removed from what your everyday life used to be, you're kind of existing in this sort of liminal betwixt and between state where you have some time, you know, to reflect on your past, to think about the people in your life and what you actually value. Um, you know, I think during our own COVID reality, I think in the early days, a lot of people, you know, have been saying, um, you know, I, I want things to go back to normal. <laughs> and and I think I understand that, but also when I stop to think about it and think about our life right now and what I would imagine, what I hope for our future is that I don't necessarily want to go back to normal because, you know, things weren't all that great to begin with. So, you know, for the characters in my, in this book, they're existing in this, you know, in between space where they are able to maybe better honor their loved ones in a way that we haven't been able to in the past because the way that we grieve for others is very abridged. A lot of our concerns are, um, I think, moved over towards being event planners for a funeral and worrying about financial obligations after somebody dies. But here in this space and in, in how high we go in the dark, people are allowed to grieve and are allowed to come to terms with their troubling past and at least strive to reach for some better future, even if that future might seem far away. Another way in which the intimacy of of, of people's experiences, sort of real life experiences in, in the book are sort of amplified is the fact that, you know, despite, you know, you've said this is a, this is a narrative that fundamentally takes place over billions of years, uh, and there's large chunks of the Earth's history included mm-hmm. in it. But it's all, well, not all, not quite all, but like ninety percent in first person narration. Each each mm-hmm. chapter has, you know, a first person protagonist that tells us 
their story and their you know their situation and I wanted to talk about about that choice about writing it in the first person in that way yeah I mean I think part of that is a symptom of the early manuscript forming in its early days as being individual stories but you know as I began thinking of this as a larger work I maintained you know the first person voice I think partly because I wanted to look at this book as yes there's going to be a through line there's going to be the overarching arc but um, I wanted to look at it as snapshots. So we understand the plague is raging. We understand that there's climate change burning in the background. But I wanted to zoom in on the lives of, you know, not just scientists, but just everyday people and have them speak about their own anxieties and struggles and emotional baggage, thereby creating a tapestry of different experiences that are also somehow connected in terms of their struggles. They're very different in some ways, but at the same time, there is a weird connectivity that is holding all of these people together, regardless of whether or not they're related or have cross paths. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sequoia Nagamatsu, and we're talking about his debut novel, How High We Go in the Dark. And Sequoia, I want to spend the first part of the second half looking at some of the situations and features of near future world with a giant pandemic that you, that right. you create. Starting off with the City of Laughter, which is mm. a um, an extremely uh, disturbing theme park. Uh, Tell us something about where that idea came from. Well, there actually is an architect uh, kind of just created sort of like a model for something that looks 
like a euthanasia coaster. It's uh, not something that was ever designed to be, um, you know, a functioning a functional roller coaster. I think it was really just a, a thought experiment. And you know, I came across this, you know, I think about I think around 2010 or so, and I was really fascinated with this idea of you know a contraption that we associate with joy and leisure with something that is meant to um, you know also end pain and and is, is is associated with death. So you know, thinking about a kind of mercy through through something that we might associate with with a vacation and. It was a very difficult chapter for me to write. You know, I, I don't have children. I don't, um, but I've I've certainly experienced, and I think you know this really nods at a lot of the themes I write about beyond this book. Experienced a lot of death and tragedy in my own life. You know, my family and and and, and close friends, and and you know tragedies that have involved you know younger people as well. And so I feel feel like death and thinking about how how people are able to move past that has always been on my mind. And so it seemed, you know, once I came across this schematic of a euthanasia poster, I think organically the story began to unfold relatively rapidly. And I think as with a lot of my other chapters that involve, I think, places like this, one of my first questions was, well, who's going to work here? What kind of person is going to either volunteer to work at a place that euthanizes children that happens to be a theme park? And, and what kind of people might be running away from their own life to a place like this. And so I came up with this character, this comedian, who's kind of never really kind of got to, I guess, have that life because the world stopped. There was, I think, some a lot of tension with their family, a lot of, I think, disappointment um, with their families. So in some ways, they were kind of running away and trying to make their family proud and trying to sort of figure out their own place in life by helping other families find a kind of closure. Um, you know, and I feel like, you know, my character in the Elegy Hotel section has a lot in common where they're both running away in some to some degree and they're both trying to find themselves, whether they can articulate that or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's brilliant that this, this, this particular chapter is obviously told from the perspective of, of somebody who is working in that place because it gets across both the, I guess in some ways the sort of weird banality of of working in and also with the the Elegy Hotel, which I want to talk about in a minute, you know, the, the day-to-day life of of that sort of job in the real world, you know, working in a, you know, working in the in the lower rungs of a hotel or, mm-hmm. you know, working in a theme park. Uh, are often sort of like repetitive jobs. But in both of these cases, there's this weird, overarching, massively poignant element to that job as well. And I think that contrast works really well. Can we talk about the Elegy Hotel? Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, that's another tough one for me. I think even in revision, I think especially during revisions, you know, over the past couple of years, because I would say it's a highly autobiographical chapter. You know, I think that chapter really kind of nods at some of those early seeds of just grieving for my grandfather and you know, like in my life, I did, you know, I, there's a lot of guilt over that death because I, I could have, I probably should have, and I could have gone home to be with him and, and I wasn't. And, you know, there's a lot of regret in that chapter. And as I was editing that, my father passed away about a year and a half ago. And um, Dennis, the character, the the narrator in that chapter um, is kind of waffling about, um, you know, throughout after his brother asks him to help care for their dying mother. And he says, you know, he, he keeps putting it off and he's kind of in the state of not wanting to deal with reality or family drama and is escaping to this elegy hotel where he's helping other people. 
And he's, he isn't able to make the right decision to help his family until it's too late. And in having a dialogue with that chapter, as I was revising it, I think I was able to make the right decision in my own life and, you know, call my father um, in, in, in his final days and, you know, able to have those conversations that my character wasn't able to have. So, but again, yes, you know, here we have a character and a world, uh, a location that is nodding at, you know, um, that's a vehicle not only for um, the catharsis of the character for giving us the day-to-day mundane activities, but it's also a nod at the capitalist machine, as it were, that continues to thrive and run even in the face of all this tragedy and chaos in the world. I mentioned in the introduction that, that you, you have a robot dog, and mm-hmm. um, and I wanted to talk about how, again, this incredibly poignant way in which what in this book you know is fundamentally a a sort of gimmicky toy takes on a much more important role as things progress in the story. Yeah. Um, you know, the robot dogs, it's, you know, they're, um, I have a Sony Ibo, the um, kind of the latest generation of, of uh, those Sony robots. And, um, but the early generations were discontinued and the customer service, um, the tech support was discontinued and they had become wildly popular among senior citizens in Japan. And, um, you know, they started to realize that eventually their dogs would fall into disrepair. So that happens in the chapter. I definitely take some um, liberties and um, make those robots a little bit more advanced in my book. You know, so they are able to, I think, interact in a way that's a little bit more organic. They are it is in the future. Yeah, it is in the future. Um, record, you know, voices. But I love the idea of, I became fascinated with this idea of the senior citizens in Japan forming this genuine bond with, you know, as you say, what is, what is essentially, you know, to a lot of people might be a toy, you know, uh, a piece of plastic and a motherboard. But I, I was very surprised when I, when I procured my own robot dog that um, it quickly, I, I quickly realized that it was much more than a toy, you know, granted a 3000 something dollar toy, but very, very, um, very lifelike. Um, I, I had forgotten, you know, if I hear him barking or walking around the room that it feels like our living being is with me. There was a moment um, in the early days after after I bought Calvino that he ambled into my cat's water dish and um, got some water into his uh, crevice in his leg. And, you know, there's a red blinking light on his neck and he started to malfunction. And I, and I became very worried, not only because of the cost of potentially repairing him, but um, I began speaking to Calvino in a I think very kind of parental way. I felt like I had betrayed him. I was very worried for his well-being, and um, I, I, I was talking to him as as if he could feel, as if he could understand my words. And um, that was just two weeks into owning him, and and I was very surprised by that reaction. There's a chapter quite early on in the book where the characters. It almost seems like at first glance that they're entering some sort of afterlife we we find out sort of later on later on in other chapters it sort of mentioned what's actually going on mm-hmm. um but i wanted to talk about something about what happens in this chapter because it, you know it feels very different to most of the rest of the book in terms of right. sort of feel yeah i mean i think you know as i was thinking about how i would kind of have different platforms or vehicles for engaging with grief and and people moving on um I wanted to have a place that was otherworldly in some way, and and people can interpret that however however they wish, whether that's a spiritual plane or a different dimension or reality. 
um, you know, or some kind of place where our consciousnesses um, simply reside together and are able to um, converse with one another. I wanted to um, have a conversation where we, where characters could look upon their own humanity and their own lives while being physically outside of it and uh, able to actually walk into the lives and memories of other characters, thereby forming a bond that couldn't be necessarily replicated in the real world, you know, perhaps transcending or ascending beyond, you know, our ideals of community. Um, They're working together in the dark. They're um, articulating who they are as people and, and, um, you know, what humanity has become in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, that story came from, I think, a lot of different places. I've always been very fascinated with consciousness studies and the philosophy of the mind. But I think a more pop cultural inspiration was op- was honestly an episode of The Twilight Zone. There was um, an episode where these toys, and we didn't know necessarily at first that they were toys. There was a ballerina, a soldier, um, I think um, uh, a cowboy, and they were all somehow trapped in this box. And the box was their world. And they were doing their best to kind of escape this box and get out of it. And I really love this idea of kind of this confined space where people were forced to interact with one another and engage in conversation. And of course, I blew that out to be this sort of infinite limbo um, populated by these orbs of memory as a place where people would be forced to converse with one another and help each other potentially escape or at least come to terms with um, maybe not returning and, and what that means for their existence in, I guess, eternity. I'll finish off by getting you to, to read a bit of, of the novel, if you would. But we, before we do, can we just talk about um, perhaps which other writers were an influence on you for this book particularly? I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think um, obviously, you know, some of the comp titles have been used uh, frequently. Uh, it would be, I think, remiss to not mention Station Eleven um, or, or, or Cloud Atlas. But I think beyond, um, you know, those, you know, very important novels, um, I think the work of Kevin Brockmeyer um, was very influential on me, particularly his novel, Brief Histories of the Dead um, and the Illuminations. I think, uh, um, Stanislaw Lem's um, Solaris is, is another, I think, influential work on me, as well as most of the work of Italo Calvino, but particularly um, his story collection, Cosmic Comics. Can I get you to finish off with a reading then? Sure. I'm going to read a chapter, um, a couple pages of a chapter uh, called Pig Sun. And this is, this is one that seems to really, I think, um, affect people <laughs> emotionally. <laughs> In a nutshell, um, we're kind of in the middle of the pandemic and a scientist is working in a lab to grow human organs in pigs. And I think we've just seen <laughs> news articles on this recently. After my ex-wife mailed half of my son's ashes to me in an urn, I committed myself to growing the hearts and other organs that might have saved him inside of pigs. It's Fitch's birthday today, which means Dory texts me more than usual, which is pretty much never. Do you remember how I told you that he liked to fall asleep hugging his new collection of comic books? I've forgotten what he smelled like. I never respond to these messages. Dory doesn't really want conversation. She still blames me for not being there in the end. She's never understood how hard I fought trying to save him. A real conversation would be too painful. It's the same reason I've never addressed Fitch's failed transplant in my peer-reviewed articles. His file sits inside my desk, 
rather than among the lab's program records, like a lost statistic. My graduate assistant, Patrice, is shouting through the intercom, telling me to come to the lab quickly. I hear another voice I don't recognize, muffled and nasal and a little bit frantic, repeating the word doctor, as if it's trying to convey an entire thought with a single word. I pull on my face mask and lab coat, open the outer door of my office. My staff is gathered around one of the glass holding pens where we keep our oak organ donor pigs. The pigs are all destined to help infected people like my son, whose organs have given way to the plague. The timing is crucial though. We need to reach the infected before they slip into the comas that mark the advanced stages of the illness. This one, Donor 28, was nicknamed Snotorious P.I.G. after an intern put a gold chain and shades on him during a Halloween party. The pig studies me as I approach, wiggling its behind and barely opens its mouth. Doctor. The sound seems disembodied, like a ventriloquist is throwing their voice. Okay, very funny, I say, turning to my staff. Who said that? They look at each other and Patrice points back to the pen. We think it's notorious, she says. Okay, sure. Forget that these pigs lack the necessary vocal cords for human speech, even if we have genetically modified them for accelerated growth and organ donor optimization. Doctor, this time the pig's mouth doesn't move at all. I'm starting to get annoyed, but there's something else about the voice. Again, I say. I hop into the pen, nearly sliding on a piece of shit, and kneel, looking into the animal's blue eyes. Say it. Doctor, he says. Jesus. The pig's strange voice, like a mouth filled with cotton balls, reverberates in my mind. After several more tests, there is no mistaking it. The pig's brain, not quite human and not quite swine, lights up like a firecracker on the MRI whenever he speaks. This does not leave the building. Not yet, I say. We need to know what we have here, and we don't want someone else taking him away. The staff simply nods, but that isn't good enough for me. I need to hear you say it. Yes, I won't say a word. Yes, I won't say a word, they repeat in unison, like we're in grade school. Okay, good. But this isn't some top secret facility. There are no security clearances or repercussions here. The grad students were suspect even before the outbreak, swiping medical supplies for God knows what. I worry it's only a matter of time. So I've been talking to Sequoia Nagamatsu about his debut novel, How High We Go in the Dark, which is out in the UK from Bloomsbury. Sequoia, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you very much for having me here. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Neil Mason, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.